Oh my gosh! Hello, good evening ladies and gentlemen! We are here for Season 2, Episode 10 of Straight Talking English. Remember you can find us on straighttalkingenglish.com or SDR8Talk English on Twitter or SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Stitch, uh, Soundbox and whenever pods are casted. As ever, I am your host, Catherine, and today we are looking at violence in the play and violence in Elizabethan England because, let's face it, aside from love, this is an incredibly violent play. What makes Romeo and Juliet a bit weird is it's set in contemporary England. Well, to quote uh, um, a book I'm drawing on a lot today called Gillian Woods by Gillian Woods called A Reader's Guide to Essential Criticism of Romeo and Juliet. She points out where other English tragic drama of the period was rooted in stories from classical mythology or national history. Romeo and Juliet was sourced from contemporary fiction. So this is up to date. This is what's happening right now. The historian H.B. Charlton concluded that it must therefore reflect a range of experience and base itself on a system of values which are felt by the audience to be real. Which is kind of interesting really because some people including the historian Levinson think that the violence in Elizabethan England at that point was a measure against the power of nobles because remember there isn't such a thing as like one national army nobles held their own armies and some of these people own tracts of land that are basically counties levinson argues that with its feud street fights dueling casualties and deployment of combat imagery romeo and juliet offers a panoramic view of violence in elizabethan england well that's a bit one-dimensional it's like saying the only violence in the UK is bank robberies. Well, yeah, it's true. that That is a thing that happens. But I don't actually know what percentage of crime is bank robberies in the UK. Honestly, a bit scared to look up crime statistics at the moment after I got burgled. Because I keep seeing them and being like, oh my gosh, it's outside. The argument that the historian Fitter makes is actually, again, this isn't the full story. The violence in London was working class because at the heart of a war-torn, overtaxed and now hunger-threatened nation. London in the 1590s was a congested, polarised and angry city in which the Crown and its officials had become hated and the Lord Mayor made to fear for his life. I mean, it sounds good in the abstract, like, oh yeah, this stuff happened, but Christopher Marlowe, a contemporary of Shakespeare's, was killed after a drunken pub fight in which he got stabbed in the eye. And outside the globe, a guy got stabbed claimed Shakespeare witnessed it and took him to court to try and get compensation. This is everywhere, this is outside where he's living. There's arguments that he that Shakespeare lived near Liverpool Street Station to write this and that's right in the heart of where all the trades were. In 1595 more than a thousand apprentices. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a thousand people? That's like a whole school standing there and these apprentices took part in a riot on Tower Hill. Their issues were the scale 
scarcity and the rising cost of food, the greed of the rich of their masters, and the mistreatment of other arrested apprentices. In the end, five of them were hung, drawn and quartered. Others were punished in different ways, but this riot is odd because it directly criticises the rich. And depending on where Shaky was, whether he was on a night out or whether he was out in the country or whatever, he could well have witnessed the riot from outside of his window. No wonder he's thinking of young people causing problems. The rioters are accused of wanting to rob, steal, pillage and spoil the wealthy and to take the sword of authority from the magistrates and governors lawfully authorised. Well, bit scary. And if you think about this, everything in the play is two sides. In the same way you've got the apprentices on one side and the governors on the other. Everything in the play is a binary. Dark, light, Capulet, Montague, male, female, Romeo, Juliet. Everything is split in two. In fact, the words two and pair are a recurring image. Think about the prologue. In Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, we have a pair of star-crossed lovers. Civil blood makes civil hands, two hands, unclean. Bury their pair and strife. We've got the imagery of pair as well. Everything is set up as being two sides. And thinking of two sides, again, this was an image that Shakespeare would see. Is people sword fighting? From about 1570 through the 1580s, it was a big deal to do fencing, to do sword fighting. There were two manuals that you could read to teach you how to fight properly. One was a guy called Saviolo and he taught the fancy pants Italian style of fencing with a very thin foil. But then you also had this dude called Silver who got really annoyed at Saviolo claiming that he knew what he was doing. And actually the English way was better where you basically just get a massive sword and try and chop at the other dude and that was actually the proper way of doing things. I mean, I don't really agree with either. The historian Wilson says that the fight between Mercutio and Tybalt is meant to be a representation of a disciple of Saviolo's, and Silver's complaint of the great loss of the English gallants might defer to the death of Mercutio, because Mercutio laughs at this fancy TikTok style of fencing that Tybalt does. So, I was honestly thinking about this and I texted my friend, can you kill someone with a fencing sword? So when Tybalt goes for Mercutio and he's got a fencing sword, could he kill him? And the answer is probably yes, but maybe no. So I mentioned in my last podcast that the first half of this play is a comedy or at least has the features of a comedy, but the second half after Mercutio's death has this tragic turn. If Tybalt is using a proper rapier, yeah, that's a hundred percent you could kill someone yeah if he's using a foil or a training sword the way my friend phrased it is if you snap it in half and keep beating someone with it forever you might hurt them so it kind of depends on your interpretation of Tibble about whether you think he was actually out to kill speaking of killing there's something kind of interesting that's happening in the world of the military at this point so within military technology there was a move away from swords 
attitudes towards guns. The historian Ian Mortimer says it was handheld weapons that constituted the most major change. Because you've had cannons and cannonballs around for time, but they're big and they're heavy and they're great to destroy walls, but not much else. In 1500, even the more portable guns, guns, guns were cumbersome mini cannons that one person could barely lift, let alone shoot swiftly and accurately. While a man could handle and fire such a gun on his own, by the time it loaded it, aimed it, and ignited the gunpowder, his enemies would have overrun him. Thus, almost all the advantages still lay with the old technology. But the introduction of standardised shot for guns of a specific calibre allowed bullets to be cast cheaply in large numbers and shared between soldiers. The introduction of the wheel lock firing mechanism, though expensive, permitted an efficient way of firing pistols and long barrel guns that didn't burn miles of match. In 1584, only about 10 years before Romeo and Juliet was written, William, Prince of Orange, became the first head of state to be assassinated by a pistol, and by the end of the century over half the troops on both sides in the conflict between Spain and the Dutch were armed with portable barreled guns. So why have these young people attacking each other with swords if it's not necessarily based on what Shakespeare saw out his window? Well, I asked my partner this in a state of desperation last night and he put forward this idea that it's all about practicality. They don't have the technology on stage to show that people are firing guns. It just look a bit rubbish and someone's got a gun and then they shout bang. But actually, stage fighting and sword fighting is really easy to do on stage. You just like, just have a fake sword. It's, this would work. This is why at least he thinks so. And I'm inclined to agree it might work. But as part of this military revolution of about 1560 onwards, there is a big shift in terms of power that we can see in the play. It shifts from the power of the individual to the power of the state. So if someone does a crime, now we would call the police. The state would deal with it. Whereas before this military revolution, you deal with it yourself. The idea of civilised society, of we behave in a certain way, the state does the dirty work, is on the rise. As I mentioned in the first episode, individualism means that people have got this impression of self-respect. People have got this impression of danger, self-awareness, and this respect for what the state can accomplish that we can't. Mortimer again. At the same time, individualism and self-awareness were slowly changing the nature of self-respect in society. Consider that high murder statistic for Oxford in 1340. Basically, like, 70% of young people were involved in a murder. It kind of sounds Sounds like some bits of South London. A joke, joke, respect, respect. But the reason for this obscene murder statistic was that, as in Dodge City, you had a large number of young ambitious men with knives on their belt and friends on their sides edding, egging them on. The knives were still around in 1577 when William Harrison commented in his description of England that almost every young man in London insisted on carrying a dagger. But Harrison was very disapproving of the practice. Men of good character were now expected to go to the law if they had a grievance. The heavily Puritan society of early Elizabethan England, which frowned on violence 
silence for religious reasons, no doubt further undermined the confidence that young men felt when they went about town armed with a dagger, where once a degree of dignity had attended the man who took revenge in person, now greater respect was accorded to the man who considered such violence beneath him. Overall then, violence is going down in society. I mean, it's going down from being, oh my god, life is just like, don't go out your house, to being still really high, but it is decreasing. So the violence in Act 3, Scene 1, where young men take it upon themselves to get some revenge, that is shocking. They are civilised, they are noblemen, they should not be doing that. An interesting argument though is, is the feud actually kind of over by the time the play starts? I think so, to be honest. I think so. So does the writer Charlton when he says the feud fails to live up to the importance Shakespeare has attached to it. The heads of the warring households are almost comic figures rather than fierce chieftains. Mutual friends are shared between the two sides. When in love with the Capulet Rosaline, and we know this because she goes to the Capulet party without needing to gate crash, Romeo is unconcerned by her familial identity. The Montague youths confidently sneak into the Capulet party protected only by masks. And this is a good point actually, just interrupting myself. I feel like if someone I hated, and there isn't that many people so it's pretty easy to remember them, came to my party wearing a mask, I would know who they were. Like, it's pretty obvious and we kind of assume it's a theatrical conceit. You know, like a lot of rest of Shakespeare where um, the boy dresses as a girl and then the girl dresses the boy in Twelfth Night and no one can recognise them. But actually, if we look at it as a more literal thing rather than just a device, it does support this. Old Capulet happily tolerates the gate crashes rather than spoil a dance. All in all, prior to Mercutio's death, the quarrel seems almost spent. And this works. Like, if they were at each other's throats, there's no way Lord Capulet would say he shall be endured and stop Tybalt going to murder Romeo. He'd be like, yeah, look, he's here, done. Think about the fact the prince is forced to intervene. If the worst was still happening, if, like, the contemporary writer said the, the authorities were in fear for their lives by the severity of the apprentices rebellion the prince would not be confidently going in saying i'm sick of this this has been going on for time but he's kind of just petering out so in fact the theme of violence kind of contributes to the comedy almost think about another incident which is one of my students favorite lines in the play which is after the initial fight between the montagues and capulets old capulet jumps up and says bring me my longsword well that's ridiculous he's an old man a longsword is huge this isn't a serious proposition it's comedy it's like to us someone saying there's a fight bring me my musket like, yeah, it is violence, but it's comic, you know? It's inappropriate and it's old-fashioned, no matter what these writers say about the English style of defence. Going with something like a longsword is inappropriate, and that's what the older generation are doing. Samson and Abraham, when they have this fight, by the way, have bucklers when they start on the Capulets, and bucklers are wooden practice swords. 
they could not really have hurt them. I mean, getting hit over the head with a bit of wood isn't great, but they would not have died. That's the comic bit, that the Capulets are getting so riled up by two guys with sticks, basically. The officers that get called after the massive fight have clubs like cavemen. All the violence is linked to people's social status, from the nobility with their long swords and their rapiers, down to the lowest class of people who literally have clubs. The government used to regulate this. In 1557 at least, there was a, a law against the length of the blade to prevent public violence. So you could have a small knife if you were, were going to cut up an apple or something, but you could not have a proper sword. A little bit later, in 1562, Elizabeth brought in sumptuary laws. That meant you were restricted from the fabrics you could wear, like you couldn't wear like gold leaf all the time, like you can't walk around with jewels. She did this to try and pre preserve society's hierarchies, to make it clear that she was the queen, a count can wear this, a duke can wear this, a nobleman can wear this, whatever. So you could instantly see from looking at someone who they were and what their place was. But it also prevents crime. If you, it's this thing of like, oh, if I can't have my favourite dagger, I'm not going to carry a dagger at all. Oh, if by my rank I'm not allowed a sword, I'll carry something small it does prevent crime this is the big question though why didn't romeo do the right thing why didn't romeo call the police the historian dickie says it would have spoiled the play for romeo to have waited for the law and punished tybalt but the fact remains that this reasonable action would have turned tragedy into comedy in this choice between reasonable and passionate action lies one great difference between the genres Forgiveness produces the happy ending of comedy and revenge produces the catastrophe of tragedy. So by giving in to violence, it produces the tragedy, it produces the inevitability. And violence is the catalyst for this turn from comedy to tragedy. Violence is present the whole way through. Tybalt threats, opens with a fight, the fight is comic, but from then on the violence becomes very much more personal. And I'm going to argue that to a certain extent their death is inevitable, despite the fact it does not fit the traditional mould of tragedy. A tragedy needs to be caused by a flaw in the main character's personality, but I reckon this is a tragedy caused by chance, accident and the fact that violence and death has been a motif the whole way through the play. Dun dun dun, that's your little teaser. Next episode is going to be on love the other big theme in the play we're going to talk about love we're going to talk about conventions we're going to talk about harlots after that we're going to go back to the boys we're going to talk about romeo tybalt and mercutio and then the girls so that is my overall plan i'm recording this on bank holiday monday about eight o'clock so it is now time for me to go and have some dinner and just hang out and have a bit of fun on my day off. I hope you have a lot of fun as well on the rest of your week. If you're studying for your GCSEs, good luck. And I will speak to you very soon talking about love.